In 2004, the movie The Passion of the Christ hit theaters, uh, even though uh, it was, uh, had a lot of violent imagery in it, um, uh, and it had an R rating because of that. Even because of that, even though uh, that it was a huge box office success. Um, in fact, uh, I found it, it still holds the record for the highest grossing rated R movie in the United States. I mean, even Baptists went to see it. So our youth group, actually, high school youth group, went to see it. I remember when this happened. Um, I wonder how many Christians felt conflicted about encouraging uh, their neighbors and friends to go see a rated R movie. Um, I remember when it came out, though, being a little confused by the wording. Say, I grew up Baptist, so the word, the passion of the Christ, wasn't in my vocabulary. Or, you know, I'm sure I'd heard it, but I never really understood it you know, growing up. Uh, so the passion there didn't make sense to me, right? So was he yearning for the cross? Was, he, was that his driving focus? Um, and that confusion was because the word passion has changed in meaning from its original use. Um, some of the definitions that you'll find in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary are an intense driving or overmastering feeling or conviction, uh, ardent affection, or an object of desire or deep interest, and that's how people usually use the word today. But none of these meanings really align well with the original meaning. Um, the root of the word passion comes from the Latin pati, which is P-A-T-I, uh, which means to suffer. Uh, this same root gives us the word patient, like a patient in a hospital, right, is someone who is suffering. Um, or if you are exhibiting patience as a, as a characteristic, you are long-suffering in waiting. Uh, so this is why the final hours of Jesus' life are referred to as the passion of the Christ. It means the sufferings of Jesus. We are all familiar with suffering, um, though I would say, uh, in general, uh, most people in our culture have not had to face a high amount of suffering, at least not um, in ways that are comparable to most of human history. Human history has been filled with suffering, sometimes on levels that are near impossible for us to comprehend today. But that seems to be changing, doesn't it? Uh, think how much suffering we have seen in the last six months. The year 2020 has brought a new awareness of suffering uh, for many of us. And even if you haven't been directly affected by COVID-19 or unemployment or protests or election year vitriol, uh, my guess is that you are more aware of human suffering now than you were six months ago. Uh, while I would not wish suffering on anybody, uh, I'm hoping that some good will come out of this. Specifically, I'm hoping that a greater awareness of human suffering will lead us to greater acts of compassion. And that word is interesting, right? Compassion. There's our word again. Passion. The original meaning of passion is actually preserved in that word, compassion. Because com, the prefix means with. So, with passion, with suffering. When you have compassion for someone, you are suffering with them. You are taking their suffering on yourself and helping, um, putting yourself into that situation. Uh, but the passion that I wish to talk to you about today uh, is not directly tied to illness or famine or unrest. Uh, rather, it is describing our worship. I want to call us to passionate worship. Uh, so you may be thinking, uh, Micah, you're calling us to suffering worship? When you say it like that, it sounds like you're suffering through a really poorly led worship song or something, right? So that can happen, right? I've, check YouTube. There's plenty of examples. 
I remember when I first started leading worship in high school. I'll just say this. Mistakes were made. (laughs) But no, that is not what I mean by the term passionate worship. What I mean is this. If we declare God's glory with our whole lives, it will inevitably cost us something. Indeed, for so many throughout history and for millions in the world even today, declaring Jesus Christ as Lord will probably cost them everything. For hundreds of millions of Christians today, worshiping God comes with suffering. Passionate worship is declaring the glory of God no matter the cost. To passionately worship God means we give him the praise due his name regardless of the time, regardless of the place, and regardless of the consequences. Although it will be costly, I believe we are all called to passionate worship. We're going to look at an example of passionate worship. Turn, uh, if you would, with me to Mark chapter 14. I would encourage you to open up a physical Bible. If you can't, I would encourage you to open up your phone and read on your preferred Bible app. While you are turning there, I'm going to kind of tell the story. Um, to set the scene, and, uh, and then we'll actually read the text together. So this story takes place in uh, Bethany. So Jesus, when he had come to Jerusalem for his final week of his earthly ministry, he would go into Jerusalem during the day and teach and preach, uh, and then he would go out of the city, out of the town, uh, to Bethany, which is a small town, uh, 1.7 miles away. So walk to Jerusalem in the morning, walk back to Bethany in the evening. On one of these evenings, a dinner was held in Jesus' honor. Um, In attendance, at least, were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, his friends who lived in Bethany, his disciples, uh, and then uh, some other people assumed, uh, though they're not specifically mentioned. Um, During the meal, Jesus is reclining at table, laying on their side, um, feeding the food, uh, finger food, and a woman comes in, with a very expensive jar of perfume. And instead of what might have been the custom of taking a drop or two, strong-smelling perfume, uh, to anoint someone and and give a a fresher uh, smell to the room, Um, this is in the age before deodorant and things like that, instead of that, she actually breaks the expensive jar of perfume, pours all of it on Jesus' head, takes some of it, puts it on his feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. The response from the disciples is indignance. They said, what a waste. That perfume was a year's wages. We could have sold that. We could have used that for a lot of different things, right? We could have uh, given, given it to the poor, if nothing else. But Jesus rebuked them. said, stop, leave her alone. What she did to me was beautiful. She did what she could for my honor. And whenever the gospel is preached... Her story will be told also. So that's the story uh, in general terms. Let's look at the actual text of Mark 14. We're in verses 3 through 9. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So a few notes to clarify some of the text there. Uh, you may be wondering, who is Simon the leper? It says the house of Simon the leper. If he was the host of the party, that means he was a former leper, because leprosy would exclude you from any social engagement, especially hosting a party. So it, uh, it, if, it was, if he was there, uh, then he was a former leper. Um, some commentators, uh, going back uh, a millennia, even thought maybe this was the father of uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Um, but there's really uh, no textual evidence, per se, for that. Um, one thing, though, that is key is this story is not to be confused with Luke chapter 7. So Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus is at dinner at a Simon, but it's Simon uh, who's a Pharisee um, and a sinful woman, uh, which means prostitute, came in and anointed Jesus with her tears. Different story, different Simon, different uh, point, different chronology. Um, so it is not the same event. Um, but we do have parallel passages, uh, the same story in a different gospel, both in Matthew and in John, Matthew 26 and John 12. And through those passages, we can get a few more details, uh, get some more clarity of what happened. Uh, you might be wondering, what is nard? So nard is actually a, a fragrance from a, a plant in India, and it's actually still used today to make fragrances. I didn't realize that. John's account tells us Mary used a pound of pure nard. And, uh, you know, the perfume and cologne that we use now is very diluted. Uh, so a pound of pure, undiluted uh, fragrance would have really been some powerful stuff. Uh, in Mark's account, he just says, uh, some grumbled, some who said to themselves, why was it wasted? Matthew tells us more specifically, it was his disciples that grumbled. And that's interesting, because they're the ones that have been walking around with Jesus for three years. You would think they would be able to um, uh, <laughs> withhold their negative view of people. You think they would have learned by now. John, though, gives us even more detail. Uh, he tells us that it was mainly Judas Iscariot. Uh, this is backed up, even though Mark and Matthew don't specifically name Judas, right after this account, Judas is, goes to the chief priests to, to betray Jesus. So, it's kind of implied from those two accounts that Judas was the main, uh, main problem here. It's interesting. Judas was kind of rebuked by Jesus about money, and then he goes to betray Jesus with money. And we hear uh, elsewhere in the gospel that G Judas was a thief. It's all about money with Judas, and it's, it's, uh, it's sad. Who is the woman? Mark doesn't tell us who the woman is either. John, though, does tell us. This is Mary, sister of Martha, sister of Lazarus. Passionate worship is declaring the glory of God no matter the cost. Mary's act demonstrates for us the passionate worship that should characterize our lives. She declared the worth of Jesus and disregarded the cost in several ways. One, let's remember that Mary responded to God's goodness. Her worship was not uh, trying to earn God's graces or, or try to get in good with Jesus. Um, she wasn't looking towards some future reward. She was responding to what Jesus had already done for her. Remember, her brother Lazarus had died, 
She had sat with him through a sickness that took her life, took his life. She had helped prepare his body, um, assumedly. She had helped bury him in a tomb and sat four days mourning for her brother before Jesus came. And he raised Lazarus back from the dead and returned him to her. And every day when she would greet, when she would meet with Lazarus, she was reminded of the goodness and the power of God. She is responding to what God had already done for her. And this is where passionate worship starts, is remembering what God has done for us. It's not about earning merit or trying to get, um, trying to improve your spirituality per se. It's not about, uh, it doesn't start with looking toward the future. It starts with looking at what God has done for us. If you have found it difficult to worship God with any sort of passion or drive, Perhaps you have not spent enough time recently meditating on the goodness of God and what he has done for you and where you would be were it not for Christ. Mary praised Jesus because she knew him to be the Messiah and for his miraculous raising of her brother. But I would argue that we have an even more complete knowledge of what Christ did for us, not merely raising someone out of the tomb to live for another few decades, but more than that, he gave himself for us so that we can be forgiven of all our sins and have eternal life with him. And not just for us, but for all who believe. We all have a reason to worship passionately. Secondly, Mary worshiped with all that she had. The original reason I chose this text, because I was struck by Jesus' words in verse 8. She has done what she could. God never asks us for more than we can give. The problem is not that we don't have anything to give. We just don't like to acknowledge how much we really could give. The cost scares us, right? So what did it cost Mary? It is easy to focus on the monetary value of the gift, but uh, let us recognize all the ways that Mary gave of herself in this act. Uh, besides the, the financial, uh, Mary humbled herself physically. Mary took a posture lower even than a servant. Wiping the Lord's feet with her hair. Now, I don't have long hair. It would be a little awkward for me to do this, but I, I've known women who hate to have anything in their hair. So this is, this is a pretty humiliating act, right? Wiping the dust and grime off of somebody's feet uh, with your hair. Secondly, Mary offered her greatest treasure. It is likely that this jar of perfume was the most valuable possession she owned. It might have been the most valuable possession their family owned. It may have been a family heirloom. Uh, I've heard it postulated that it could have even been her dowry, uh, the way to guarantee uh, or hopefully guarantee that she would uh, be married. Whatever the case, she offered this expensive perfume to her Savior fully. She could have, like I said, simply used a generous amount. You know, instead of one or two drops, it's Jesus. So let's use 10 to 15 drops or something, right? But no, she broke the actual bottle. It can never be used for anything again. Her offering was complete. She held nothing back. Thirdly, Mary disregarded the social cost. I, I'm sure she knew that she was going to be looked down upon, reproached for how she acted. It, it was not uh, socially permissible a right in that time for a woman to interrupt uh, the men gathering at a meal unless you were serving. Now, don't get caught up in how wrong you think that practice was. Um, the point is that Mary 
knew that she would be looked down upon, and she went anyways. Her, her worship for God and for Jesus, her love for Jesus, overwhelmed her concern for social uh, propriety. She was not merely stepping out of her comfort zone. Um, she was risking social consequences, which could have been severe in that uh, culture. Passionate worship is declaring the glory of God no matter the cost. It cost Mary an asset worth a year's wages. It required from her a posture of humiliation, and it cost her social reproach. But what did she receive? Uh, let us remember that she did these things in response for what she had already received. She didn't do it for any kind of reward. But she received the Lord's blessing, which I'm sure outweighed all the cost. Here's a question. Is the gospel worth everything to you? Is the Lord's blessing worth pursuing, worth suffering for? Are we willing to declare the glory of God even if we have to suffer for it? There's another benefit from this kind of worship that is found in John's gospel account of this event. In John 12, 3, it says, The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. That may seem a little obvious, but it helps paint the picture. And also it reminded me, passionate worship is like a fragrance, right? It's a powerful reminder to those around us of the preciousness and beauty of our Savior. Like, when we are worshiping passionately, when it's clear that we have let go of, of social constructs or don't care about the cost, it emboldens and encourages the believers around us, doesn't it? It paints a, a fuller, more beautiful picture of what the gospel is. When we worship Jesus and seek to glorify him in our lives, it becomes easily recognizable. Most importantly, passionate worship is our proper response to the gospel. He is worthy, right? We were dead in our sins, separated from God, without hope. But God, being rich in love, gave himself for us so that we could be reconciled to him and have forgiveness of sins, bringing us hope in an eternal future with him. But even though we have been restored to him, that doesn't mean our lives will be easy. Let's turn back a couple chapters to Mark chapter 10. Verses 28 through 30. Jesus here has just spoken with the rich young ruler who wanted to follow God, but walked away when Jesus told him to sell all that he could and follow him. He's talking with his disciples right after this event, and Peter says, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Persecutions, that's a word that uh, is a little bit foreign to us as well here. Uh, we know what happens in the world, but most of the time we've been pretty insulated from that kind of uh, impact on our life. But unfortunately, persecutions are a reality for many, many Christians today. And according to Jesus, they will be until he comes again. Every year, an organization called Open Doors releases a world watch list that de details which countries have the highest persecution of Christians. Uh, the top ten this year are North Korea, 
Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Yemen, Iran, and India. That last one surprised me, actually. The ideals that are celebrated on the 4th of July are far out of reach for so many of our world today, especially for Christians. 260 million Christians are living in countries with high to severe persecution. 260 million. Two out of every five Christians in Asia are at high risk of persecution for their faith. Another sad thing is many of these persecuted Christians are some of the poorest people on the planet. The time may be coming, and from how 2020 is going, it may not be very far off, when it will be unsafe to be a Christian even in the United States. Even now, public outbursts of worship to God can bring strong pushback and even violence. Listen to the warnings that Jesus gives us about a passionate pursuit of Christ. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. John 12, 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And Luke 21. They will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Passionate worship is declaring the glory of God no matter the cost. This is the worship that we are called to because our God deserves nothing less. The specific cost of a life of passionate worship will look differently for each of us. Uh, for me, I hope and pray that I'm willing to suffer whenever needed in order to glorify God in this ministry that I'm going to. It is a great comfort to know that the God who called me is also the God who has promised to sustain me. I can rest in him knowing that when my strength fails, he will strengthen me. What passionate worship might God be drawing you to, might be asking you to, to give in the weeks ahead? For closing thought, I want to read Philippians 3, 7 through 14. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I know we have not worshipped you with the kind of passion that so many others in your word have shown and exhibited. There are ways, Lord, I'm sure that each of us have withheld, have paused, have waited, have let opportunities slip by. Lord, I pray that 
that you would strengthen us, that we would trust in you, we would rely on you, and we would let go and be willing to step not just out of our comfort zone, but be willing to suffer for your glory, for the gospel, that others might see that what we believe in and what we hold to is the most precious thing we have, our hope and our eternity with you and our relationship, a living relationship with your Son through your Spirit. Lord, help us not to count the cost and walk away, but rather to count the cost and see that Jesus and his glory is worth so much more than whatever pains or hardships we can face in declaring that truth. I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity this morning. I thank you for these people. And I thank you for your gospel that unites us wherever we are. Help us, Lord, to honor you today, the rest of this week, and the rest of this year with how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.